Hear the word of the Lord from John chapter 7, verse 53, through chapter 8, verse 11. They went each to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. Good morning. Well, my name is Justin, and I am the lead pastor here at the church. And this is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Obviously, today is our first Sunday in the new building, and we want to show our thankfulness both to God and those who made it happen. This was a huge endeavor for us to undertake as a young church. Nearly 25,000 square feet and nearly every single inch of it needed to be remodeled. And there, is, uh, there was no, absolutely no way we could have done it without everyone's support. So many of you prayed for us, gave financially, and came and served in some capacity over the past five months. We demoed and we demoed and we demoed some more. And then we found some more things to demo. We tore out countless square feet of carpet. We painted until that's a curse word in my house now. Don't talk about paint to me. So I want to say a huge thank you to everyone who served to make this place what it is. But I would be remiss if I didn't personally thank and acknowledge a few key volunteers who put in an extraordinary amount of work. First, my wife Amanda, who just was singing up here. Now, you know what? I'm going to make you do this. I've never done this in the history of our church, and you're going to hate me for it. I'm going to pay later, but I want you to stand up. All right? I want you to stand up. So. Not only did she personally design nearly every aspect of the remodel. She chose all of the colors and the furniture and the fixture and the accent wall. She also worked with all the staff members to get what they wanted in each of their classes and each of their spaces, and she worked within their budget, and it, she put in countless hours. She also lived as a basically a de facto single mother for the past five months, so I could spend 10 to 14-hour days here seven days a week. And I don't recall one single complaint from her. The Bible says that a wife, a good wife, is a blessing from the Lord, and she has been a blessing to me, she's a blessing to my family, she is a blessing to our church. So, babe, thank you. 
Now, I'm going to group the next guys together because we basically became a band of brothers over the past five months. Mike Galliard, I'm going to make you stand up. Mike Galliard. Larry Dean. Justin Danielson. And John Arter. John is killing large wild animals in Colorado today. So where's Liz? Is Liz here? All right. Listen. These men were by my side the entire time for five months. It's one thing to show up for a weekend to serve. These men were here for five months. They led projects and tackled task after task, keeping things going, even while I took a week and went on vacation this summer. From ceiling tiles to demo to electrical to concrete to framing to building doors, they have literally done it all. Men, thank you. We could not have done this without you. You are a blessing from God. Dude, you oh, Stand up. Those people that are standing up, and we got something for you. Scott, get to work. Let's go. You get your gift. Now, I would also like to thank the entire Martin family. All right? became my de facto painting crew, okay? <laughs> if something needed painted, and painted well, I had to call them, all right? They put in weeks worth of painting to get this place looking good for us, so thank you, Martins. We appreciate you so much. Now, my wife had plans for the exterior of the building, but I didn't have the bandwidth to manage it with everything else going on, so I was just going to put the building off, or the exterior off, until next year. I said, don't talk to me about anything else. I've got 25,000 square feet to worry about. And, but then God brought Curtis Castor to our church, and <laughs> Curtis, all right. This is going to take a long time if y'all keep clapping that many times. I feel like I'm at the Oscars right now. Curtis kind of took over all the outside projects. He cleaned and sprayed the new lines on the parking lot, dug out the flower beds and mulched them, took care of them, mowing and string trimming, and he let me use his boom lift to demo the large atrium window outside. Curtis has been a huge blessing to our church, so Curtis, wherever you are, stand up. Stand up. There we go. Got something for you. All right, I want to thank, last but not least, I want to thank my staff. Every single one of them have served over and above their job descriptions in some way to get us into this building. So Joel, Alicia, Kevin, Trevay, Kurt, and Scott, thank you for going above and beyond for making this place what it is. Now, <clears throat> by my estimation, we saved the church around $200,000 to $250,000 with all of the volunteer hours that were put in over the past months. Yeah, yeah, now let's put a number to it. Now we're like, oh, yeah. I cannot be more grateful for the way our church showed up and served. Thank you from the bottom of my heart. We took a big risk, but you all showed up, and the end result is just incredible. It is an absolute blessing to be your pastor. It's my privilege to be your pastor, so thank you. All right, now let me pray for us and let's dig into our text this morning, all right? We got something to go in. We forgot a couple people. At least one. At least one. I'm preaching this week. <laughs> I'll fight you for this. Uh, man, I know you're going to be mad at him. You're going to be more mad at me. I'm going to have you come up here on stage really quick. While she's waiting, let me introduce myself. My name is Alex Reguela. I'm Pastor Justin's boss. 
So. Just kidding. But I am one of the elders, and after talking to the staff and um, the elder candidates, we decided that we didn't want to miss this opportunity to honor the two of these people. Now, Pastor Justin already said some amazing things about Amanda and stole all of my stuff. But I will yeah. say that it, it wasn't just these past five months, right? These two have blessed our church for the past 12 years, and they've been amazing. Um, they have some amazing gifts. Amanda with her beautiful voice. Can Amanda sing? Yeah, yeah absolutely. Justin with being our lead pastor and being the primary preacher and teacher. Can Justin preach? Yeah. Not as well as Amanda can sing, but he can preach a little bit. That's right. He can That's right. A little bit. But yeah, they've been a blessing to our church for the past 12 years. But yes, they've been using some of their other gifts for these past five months. And it's just been amazing to see Amanda with her creativity and just ability to make things beautiful. Like he said, when you walked into this place that first day, it is incredible what this place looks like now. And that came from her mind. Thankful it didn't come from my mind. We would have been in trouble for sure. So thankful for Amanda for that gift. And then Justin... Um, being the general contractor of this whole project and making sure things got done, right? Having tough conversations with people when they weren't getting done and actually doing a lot of the work himself, a lot of the carpentry work himself and sweeping and vacuuming and scraping and painting. And I would see, he would send Marco Polos on his lunch break just eating gummy bears. That's all he was eating, right? So he was showing up here before most and he was leaving after most had already left every single day, adding lots of hours to his normal day job and while not missing a beat with that job, right? Still being our pastor, still faithfully showing up on Sunday morning, faithfully preaching the word of God. So we have some amazing people here, and I know it was a labor of love. You guys love the Lord. You love to serve the Lord with your gifts, and you love this church. So we want to honor you this morning by giving you this and say thank you. Thank you, brother. Appreciate that. my preaching time. Come on. All right. Thank you. Thank you. Don't ever interrupt my sermon again. All right. Just letting you know. Letting you know. All right. Let me pray for us. I'm really thankful. Thank you guys so much. We feel very loved. So thank you. Father God, you are the giver of all good gifts. And so we recognize you as the giver to us of this building. Thank you for it. Thank you for all of the men and women who labored so hard to put to make it what it is, man. And Father, now let's fill it with your word. Let's fill it with your praises. Would you send the spirit to think through my mind and speak through my vocal cords that I am just a man and I can make many mistakes and many errors, and I do. And so I need the Holy Spirit to lead and guide me in everything I do and say and think this morning. And I pray, as you promise in John, that your sheep would hear your voice. So I pray that your people would hear the voice of the good shepherd through me this morning, that you would speak to us, show us the real Jesus, show us the Jesus that loves us, that speaks to us clearly, that kind of cuts us wide open with his words, but then heals us like a surgeon would. Would Jesus show up and do that kind of work in many lives today? In his name I pray. Amen. And amen. Well... Let me just say right away that today's text might not be ideal for opening Sunday. Uh, right? Nobody says, hey, what should we preach on the first week of our new building when there will be a bunch of visitors? I know. Let's talk about adultery and stoning. And for the young people here, stoning does not mean smoking weed. All right? 
getting stoned meant people picking up rocks and throwing them at you until you were dead. That's the worst kind of dodgeball practice there, okay? But why are we studying it this morning? Why am I going to preach it? Well, we have a, we've made a commitment as a church to work verse by verse through books of the Bible together on Sunday mornings. We believe that the Bible is God's inspired words to us, and so we want to study them, even the hard ones, even the strange parts, even the ones that we read it and go, is that really good for opening Sunday? We think God's providential, and so we're going to do it. So here we are in John 8. This is where we find ourselves. We've been preaching through the book of John, and we find ourselves here in John 8, teaching on the woman who was caught in the act of adultery. And let me just say, there is a lot going on in this text, and I don't have the, the time to get all the way in the backstory. And it's really easy for us to get caught up on some things that are popular in our culture and misunderstand what's going on here. Ultimately, this text isn't about adultery. Ultimately, this text isn't about the appropriate punishment for adultery. This text is about Jesus and the way that he changes people. All right? And here's the rea reality. Jesus, when he comes into your life, he brings a sharp word. He brings a cutting word. All right? Like a, like a surgeon, he will cut you open, but then he also brings a healing hand after it. And many people want an either-or Jesus. They want a teddy bear, cuddly Jesus that just pets their face and tells them how pretty they are. And that Jesus doesn't change anyone because he's a figment of your imagination. And some people want this hard-nosed, brawler type of Jesus, but that Jesus is a figment of your imagination as well. Jesus is the perfect man. He's incredibly tough, but he's also incredibly tender. And we get to see all of that today. And if you want to have a life-changing encounter with Jesus Christ, you need to know him as tough and as tender. Right? That's where we're going to go this morning. Now, many people think that this woman here is being grossly mistreated. We would definitely, in our day and age, call her a victim. We would say she's being victimized again here. She's kind of put on trial. She's dragged out of a house, put on trial, publicly shamed. And she is being publicly shamed. But what's really going on in this story is the religious leaders, the scribes and the Pharisees, are actually trying to use this woman and this situation to trap Jesus on the horns of a dilemma. They are trying to put him between a rock and a hard place so that he makes a mistake and they have reasons to have him killed. That's what's going on. Now let me show you. Let's open up our Bibles together. Chapter 7, verse 53, and we're going to read till 8, 6 right away. They went each to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. By this point, Jesus was a very popular itinerant preacher. Everywhere he went, he did signs, he did some miracles. His teaching was authoritative in a way that people never understood it. When they heard Jesus, they knew they were hearing from God the Father. And so people wanted to hear him. So everywhere he went, he gained a following. Now this made the religious leaders, the Jewish, the Jewish leaders, the scribes, the Pharisees, very jealous. They wanted a big crowd. They were used to being the only place you could go to worship God. And now when Jesus shows up, some of their crowd is starting to follow Jesus, and that makes them very upset. Verse 3, the scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman <clears throat> who had been caught 
caught in adultery. And placing her in the midst, they said to him, Jesus, teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. So what do you say? This they said to test him that they might have some charge to bring against him. So they're bringing this charge about this woman in order to bring a charge against Jesus, okay? The woman's not the main thing, the main point in the text. Jesus is the main point in the text. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And let's do some work here to see what's really going on. First, if you remember back in Exodus, God gave Moses... Ten Commandments on the top of Mount Sinai. One of them was thou shalt not commit adultery. Okay? Adultery is breaking covenant with your spouse. It is having sexual relations outside of the covenant of marriage. I won't go into any more detail than that. So adultery is a big deal with God. When God decided to have ten rules, adultery was one of those rules. Okay? So it's a big deal. Why? Because adultery breaks covenant. We don't use that word very often. But a marriage is a covenant relationship. That means I'm in a covenant with my wife and this is a... It's a two-way covenant between us and God. And even if she were to break my covenant, I have a responsibility to keep my covenant with my wife. It's not a contract where if, you know, if I, I don't like what she provides and she doesn't like what I provide, we can just come, yeah, let's just break this thing off. It's not a contract. It's a covenant that's meant to be a bond in blood, sovereignly administered for the rest of our life. All right? So when a person commits adultery... They break covenant with their spouse and they break covenant with their God. Second, adultery hurts children and destroys families. Families are the bedrock to every culture and society. If the family gets destabilized, the society gets destabilized and weak. If a society wants to raise up responsible, healthy young people, they must do whatever they can to protect and incentivize two-parent households. Now, unfortunately, in our day and age, we think adultery is no big deal. It's literally on every, nearly every show on Netflix. It's just a part of normal life, we think. But it is a big deal. It hurts the one who commits it as it breaks covenant with God and it's sin against God. But it also hurts their spouse. It hurts their kids. It hurts their family. It hurts their friends. Often friends have to make decisions between spouses. Who's right? Who's wrong? How am I going to have a relationship with them? It can destroy churches and even does damage to wider society by destabilizing the family. Well, in Jesus' day, the ramifications for adultery were even worse. See, they didn't have the mommy state that we have today, right? They didn't have this big government who provided welfare for the family if the mother and father split up. So adultery often brought terrible poverty with it. So this is why the Old Testament made it so serious that they said, listen, if a person is caught in the act of adultery and they have two to three witnesses that catch them in the act, both parties, the maximum penalty is death by stoning. That's the maximum penalty, okay? The, now, 
the practice of the Old Testament, it was incredibly rare for anyone to actually be put to death by stoning. And, and most of the time they were caught, they had the judgment read to them, and they, they, they were convicted, and then they repented, and they were restored back to relationship. We know King David had an adulterous affair, and he wasn't stoned, right? He was, God, he was dealt with, and he was disciplined, but God forgave him and gave him grace. So, that, all of that's important to understand the backstory of what's going on. Think about this. In order to convict someone of adultery, you had to have two to three eyewitnesses, right? Here is this group of Pharisees, these good church-going men, coming, bringing this woman, throwing her down at Jesus' feet, said, we caught her in the act. We caught her in the act, right? Now, this, this is eyewitness. You couldn't just have a hunch, right? You couldn't just have someone coming home smelling of the wrong kind of cologne, right? Or some weird text message. You had to caught, catch them in the act of adultery. That's almost impossible to do if the person is sinning behind closed doors. Then on top of that, right, the maximum punishment was stoning. And but both man and woman were to be stoned. Now, did you notice in our text here, there is no man. There is no man, right? Now, if you, if you catch someone in the act of adultery, Solo adultery is tough. <laughs> right? So what's going on here? How do you, like, does he got a 4-3-40 and you just couldn't catch him? Like, you were in your robes and you just couldn't catch that guy? He's hightailing out of there? Right? No, I think something else is going on. See, at this time, here's what most scholars think what's going on. The Jewish people were being ruled they were subjugated by the Roman Empire, okay? The Jewish leaders here are trying to put Jesus on the horns of a dilemma. Do you know what that means? Think of a bull. Which horn would you like to be killed by? Right? Neither, right? When, when we use the phrase on the horns of a dilemma, it's a situation that seems to be no good way out, no easy way out, well, that's what, Jesus, that's what they're trying to do to Jesus here. Here's his options. You, they bring you this woman. You can disregard the entire Old Testament law. You can say, oh, no big deal. Adultery is not a big deal. Let her go free. Give her grace. Forgive her. That's not a big deal. And then Jesus would be convicted of the sin of disregarding God's law and his moral standards. Or Jesus could say, yeah, stone that sinner. That would break Roman law. Only the Romans had the judicial authority to put someone to death at this time. This is why later in the gospel we'll see the Jews appeal to the Romans to have Jesus crucified. They say, we can't put him to death. We want to put him to death. Right? So you see what's, what's going on here. Those are the two horns of the dilemma that they're trying to put Jesus on. He seems to be damned if he gives the woman grace and damned if he doesn't. Now, is Jesus just a hippie that says no big deal to adultery and breaks the laws of God? Or is he a revolutionary that is willing to spark a rebellion against the Romans? What's Jesus going to do? So, they, so we see the brilliance of Jesus here because he navigates his way through this dilemma without getting caught by either horn. Right? So they say to Jesus, what should we do? Should we stone her? And look what Jesus does in verse 6, uh, the second half of verse 6. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger 
in the ground. Now, can you imagine the emotionally charged situation here? We, they throw this woman down. She's just been caught in the act of adultery. They propose this dilemma to Jesus. Everybody's watching. What's he going to do? That is an emotionally charged situation. And Jesus goes, that's a king move right there. That's a king move. Now, I know he's God, and so he knew exactly what he was, what he was doing. But this is like, this is a dad move. This is a dad. You don't know what to do, so you distract everybody else, right? <laughs> like, was that the mailman? I think that was a mailman, right? Like, he, Jesus goes out, and he just starts writing. I think he's just buying time. He's writing with his finger. Now, Scholars speculate, speculate on what they think is going on here. I think it's very simple. Jesus just refuses to play their game. He knows that this whole thing is a setup, so he squats down and starts writing in the dirt. Now, there's been all kinds of speculation on what is Jesus writing. Like, is he writing? I've heard it. He's writing people's sins. Like, he's writing the Ten Commandments. He's writing... He who is without sin, or, or, or if the witnesses had to cast the first stone. He's writing that. All kinds of speculation. But we just don't know because the scriptures don't tell us. I think he's just slowing things down and refusing to play their game and fall into their trap. Then Jesus drops this bomb. Verse 7. And as they continued to ask him, so he's kneeling, writing in the ground. What are we to do? What do you want to do, Jesus? What are you going to do? They continue to ask him. He stood up and said to them, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. Now, this statement is absolutely brilliant. First, it refuses to throw away God's law. Jesus does not say, oh, no big deal. She didn't do anything wrong, right? Second, under the Old Testament law, the eyewitnesses had to actually throw the first stone. This was to prevent false testimony. If a person falsely accused someone of adultery and the witnesses didn't agree, the people who accused them would actually be stoned. You had to give over your stone and they would stone you. That prevented false testimony. Third, Jesus here is putting, he's taking the spotlight off of the woman and he's putting it onto the religious Jewish leaders, which is interesting. These morally upright people bring a sinful woman caught in the act, sexually sinful woman, throw her at the feet of Jesus, and Jesus takes the spotlight off of her and puts it on them, the religious people that brought her to him. Jesus here, and it's important for me to clarify this, he's not saying you have to be sinless in order to throw a stone. He's making a very specific point. In this situation right here, Anybody who is without sin, go ahead and throw the first stone. In this situation. Now, what does that tell us? That tells us that these religious leaders were up to something, right? How did they catch her and not the guy? See, this whole thing was a setup. More than likely, they paid some dude to sleep with this woman who was most likely a prostitute. They set this whole thing up be here at this time. Here's the house. Here's the room. They all put that in their day timers, right? iPhone dings, boop, boop, catch her now. They all show up, look through the windows, look what they're doing. Let's go bring her to Jesus, 
right? Now, what is actually going on here? These men, the men who looked morally responsible, the men who looked all buttoned up and all religious and went to the temple every week, these men were hypocrites. These men were sinning, trying to catch the Son of God. So they orchestrated this big old whole, this whole big old sin fest in order to bring this woman to the man. They let the man go free, right? And now they just bring the woman to Jesus. That means these men here, they've sinned in all kinds of ways. They sin by being treacherous. They sin by lusting, like they're literally watching this thing happen, right? They're, they're showing favoritism to the man and letting him go while dragging her before Jesus to be judged. So what Jesus does is take the spotlight off of her. He's not saying she's not guilty. He's not saying she's not a sinner. He just takes the spotlight off of her and puts it on them. And they've probably never had that spotlight on them before. Verse 8. And once more he bent down and wrote in the ground. Once more he bent down and wrote in the ground. Jesus here taking his time. He's not reacting emotionally to the situation. He's in absolute control of his own spirit, of his own mind, of the words that are coming out of his mouth. Verse 9. But when they heard it, that one word, one sentence. Look at the, let's go back and read the sentence again. Let him who is without sin in this situation among you be the first to throw a stone at her. He's like, go ahead, stone her. But anybody who's not guilty, you start. Look what happens. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. <laughs> beginning with the older ones. Now what's going on there? Right, what's going on? Here's what's supposed to happen. The longer you live, the more aware of your own sinfulness and your own brokenness you should be. Right? Now, if you're a Christian and you're following Jesus, you, he is going to make you from one degree of glory into his image. You're going to be growing. The process is called sanctification. You're going to be getting more and more like Jesus. But as you get closer and closer to Jesus, in, in a sense, you also think about it. You get closer and closer to the light. You also begin to see in those dark places of your heart. You begin to see that sometimes I do good things just to get a pat on the back. Sometimes I do good things just because I want people to think well of me, right? You begin to see, like, sometimes the best things I do. Sometimes I'm a really good mom just so I can put that on Instagram. Nobody in here has ever done that. I mean, other people do that, right? Other people do that, right? Sometimes I do these good things, and I actually have impure motives, it's interesting here. These men start, every one of these details matter. They drop their stones, they walk away, the older ones first. Why? Jesus' words, here it is, bring conviction of sin. Amen. Isn't she, we caught her, she's guilty. Jesus turns the spotlight to each and every one of them and says, you without sin cast the first stone. The light comes on in their heart. Conviction is brought. They feel guilty. So they drop their rocks and go home. The real Jesus brings real conviction to God's people. This is a normal process. Jesus doesn't just tell us how great we are and tell us how proud of us he proud of us he is because we've grown and we're not doing what we used to do and right? He's also still shining his spotlight into our heart. Right? It's still bringing 
conviction. Verse 10. I'm trying to find my clock. Verse 10. <clears throat> Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? Now, this is interesting. You have a guilty verdict, and then you have a condemnation, or you have, right, you've got the punishment for that thing. There is no question this woman is guilty. She was caught in the act, right? She's not just a victim. Has she been victimized and publicly shamed? Yes. But here's the deal. Our society needs to know this. You will never grow as a person. You will never change as a person if you only see yourself as a victim. You have been victimized, but oftentimes we respond sinfully to being sinned against. In other words, when someone sins against us, they can make us a victim, they can hurt us, but we don't have to remain a victim. We can take ownership and responsibility of that and choose to forgive them and follow Jesus and walk in newness of life. Jesus says, has no one condemned you? They've all dropped their rocks. They've all moved away. She said, no one, Lord. Can you imagine this woman? This woman was duped. This woman was, she knew what she was doing. If she was a prostitute, she got some money for it. She knew why she was there, but she didn't bargain for this. She didn't bargain to be dragged out into the middle of the street and brought for, before this popular itinerant preacher with all of these people watching. She didn't bargain for this. You know what else she didn't bargain for? To have her entire life changed. To have all of her guilt removed. All of her shame removed. All of her past wiped clean with the blood of Jesus. She didn't have that in the bargain either. She didn't know that today. She was showing up as a prostitute, but she could leave as a daughter of the king, forgiven for everything she's ever done. So what Jesus says to her, Jesus says, neither do I condemn you. That she did not have. She had inappropriate experience on the day timer. The day timer. She did not have meet with the son of God on the day timer. But God had it on his day timer. God had it in his calendar. God providentially had her brought before them in the worst experience of her life. Why? Because when she's at her bottom, Jesus can pick her up. Jesus says, neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. In other words, leave your lifestyle of sin. Leave your habitual practice of sin. Become a new person now. Now, it's in, this is a brilliant picture of Jesus here and the gospel and the way it changes us from the inside out. It's interesting to note what Jesus doesn't say and what Jesus doesn't do. St. Augustine, about 1,600 years ago, said of this text that people often sin in two ways in response to this text. You hear about this woman, and first off, you can be really afraid by it. Like, you can look at, the, can you imagine putting yourself in this situation with all these people aware of your greatest sin? And that could lead us to despair. Imagine if people found out what I did. Imagine if people knew what was in my past. Imagine what people, if they really know what's going on in my heart, imagine what people would do. Or imagine what God would think of me. There's no way that God could accept me, people believe. Right? This woman probably thought that. I can't go to the temple. I'm an adulteress. So 
St. Augustine said, we often hear this kind of text and we feel despair, afraid that God would ever accept us. We feel guilt for sinning against God. And if we don't understand the grace of God, that can lead us to despair. We can believe that I, I can't believe I'm this bad of a person. I can't believe I did this. God could never love me or forgive me. There's no hope for me. That response is actually a sin. That response is actually a sin. This text in the whole Bible tells us that God loves sinners so much, he sent his one and only son to come and live for us and die for us to forgive us of our sins. King David himself was an adulterer, and God still said he was a man after his own heart. So listen, if you feel ashamed this morning, if you feel embarrassed by your sins, if you feel guilt for your sins, come to Jesus and hear his words to you. I do not condemn you. Now, how can he say that? How can Jesus say, I do not condemn you? We, what, is, what is the difference between guilt and condemnation? You can feel guilty. Jesus never said she's not guilty. He said, I do not condemn you. We're talking about the punishment for your sins. Why did he not condemn her? Because in a few short weeks, he would be condemned for her. She's walked before the court of justice. They said guilty of adultery. The sentence has been declared death. And Jesus steps in and takes her place and takes the condemnation for her so the wrath of God is completely removed from her and now the only thing that she gets to experience is the grace, mercy, and kindness of God. Amen. This is how Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.21, for our sake, God made Jesus to be sin who knew no sin so that in Jesus we might become the righteousness of God. We give Jesus our sins. He gives us his righteousness. It's called a divine exchange. And that changes you. Once, that, once you understand that and that drops from your head to your heart, you will never be the same again. You will be okay with God's conviction and assured of his love. Because his love is not dependent upon how well you behaved and performed that week. His love has been secured by a perfect life of Christ and the substitutionary death of Christ and the resurrection of the Son of God to the right hand of the Father. But the second way we can sin in response to this text that Augustine talked about is by, he called it the sin of excessive hope. I would call it the sin of presuming upon the grace of God. What he means is that you can sin and then you can say to yourself, oh, it's no big deal. God will just give me grace. And then you can try to live your life of sin without ever changing your life. Many of us in America are tempted to do this. We want to come to Jesus and receive forgiveness of sins. And then we don't want Jesus to mess up our life. We have sports on Sunday. I'm not going to look at you when I say that. Right? I don't want to make eye contact with anybody in here. Right? We got stuff going on on Tuesday night. We got stuff going on on Wednesday night. We got travel ball and we got all this stuff going on. We're too busy to allow the church and Jesus Christ to interrupt our life. Jesus didn't die for your Midwestern American lifestyle. I did not mean to get all up in your business this morning, but that's what happens, right? When, if, you have a, if you have an encounter with Jesus, he will change you. He will bother you. He will get into the nooks and crannies of your heart. 
So what we can do is want to come to Jesus, get our sins forgiven, supposedly, and then go live our life like the rest of the world the other six days a week. No, Jesus says, no, that kind of greasy grace, that kind of presumption is actually sin. If you are a Christian, you are to make the commitment. Hear her, hear what he said to her, go and sin no more. Now that is not a command to do the impossible, right? That is not a command to have sinless perfection. Jesus is the only one who has had, had that kind of moral perfection. But when God saves us, here's what he does. From heaven, he sends the Holy Spirit into our hearts. The Holy Spirit brings a new power with him that we did not have before. And this power is not to show off and do miracles. This power is to live a new life. This power, what it, what it, what it, what it starts doing when it gets inside of us is it starts causing us to hate some things that we used to really like to do. Sinful things. Those sinful things now start to taste bad. They start to, we start to think differently about them. And what is, what is the Spirit leading us to do? To hate our sin, to confess our sin, to repent and turn from our sin, and turn to Jesus Christ for grace. And the Holy Spirit enables us and empowers us to new life. We can live differently. We have victory over sin. Will we be sinless? Absolutely not. But we're going to be it's called progressive sanctification. The longer we live, the more power that we've got over and the more victory we have over sin. Listen, if you are new here this morning, this service that we've got, and I'm closing right now, this service that we've got, it should feel a little foreign and strange to you. Many churches... They take your needs into account and then they build their worship gathering around your needs. And so everything is super casual and everything is upbeat and everything is happy clappy. We don't think that's what the scripture teaches us to structure our service around. We want to be structured around Jesus and the words that he brought called the gospel, the good news. And his words cut and convict and they also forgive and give grace. Most people in our society, listen, they try to hide their sins they want to ignore them and act like they aren't there. That's like refusing to treat a wound. It only gets worse. It will fester and get infected. God has given us a prescription to deal with our sin. It's not hiding. It's not running. It's not ignoring. It's confession and repentance and absolution, hearing the good news of the gospel and believing it. That we are to be reminded every single week that God is gracious to forgive us our sins when we bring them into the light and turn from them. And this is so interesting. What does God do? See, Jesus, he, he of course goes to the cross and dies for this woman. But he does more than that. He gives his disciples the Lord's Supper. And he says takes the bread and he breaks it and he says, this is my body broken for you. It's broken on the cross. This is my blood, the cup of the new covenant that's been shed for you to cover your sins and give you a new identity. And he says to us, eat it as often as you come together. Remembering the Lord's death. What is, it, what is that? What's going on there? Listen, Jesus Christ calls us in, a bunch of broken sinners, guilty sinners, and he brings us in every single week, and he reminds us, I died for you. I gave my body. I gave my blood. And he brings us into a new church family, right? Just like wherever it is, over there, 
a lot of ingredients went into making that bread, right? And it comes from one loaf, and that one loaf will be broken to feed all of us. We are one body, and then we come in, and we have brothers and sisters, and then we're sent out into the world. Jesus has made a table for us. Do you hear me? He didn't just die for you. He didn't just live for you. He's feeding you this morning. He's meeting you at this table. The Son of God wants you this morning. He wants to feed you. He wants to, we would say, sup with you. He wants to hang out with you. He wants to meet you over table fellowship. He wants to love you and forgive you and give you grace. The question is, will you receive it? That's it. Will you receive it this morning? Let me pray for us. Father God, you are better to us than we are to ourselves. You are a God of utmost holiness and righteousness and you never bend your standard but you are also a God who gives grace that can outpace our sin not one person in this room this morning has out your grace your grace is enough you can forgive any and all sins and I pray through the power of the Holy Spirit you would bring conviction you would give them the gift of repentance and faith this morning and they would confess that Jesus Christ is Lord of all and for, for all of the believers in this room, Lord, you invite us to your table to give us what we need. We need more of your grace. We need more of your presence. We need more of your guidance. So give us this morning, through this meal, what we lack. We pray all of this in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen. Amen.